Now, a few weeks ago, my uh, sister Victoria and her family, uh, she has two girls, ages five and seven, they came um, from Charlottetown PEI for a visit over here to Halifax. And so they're about my son Seth's age, and so when the three of these cousins get together, there's a lot of yelling and screaming, um, running around, and every once in a while there are tears as well. Um, So it can get pretty wild. Now they arrived at 12.30 on Saturday, and by 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon, I was like, okay, we need to get out of the house um, because it was just getting a little overwhelming. And so I said, let's go to DeWolf Park in Bedford on the waterfront. And so that was a good idea. It was a nice day. So we all piled into our vehicles. We couldn't all fit into one. And I said, you guys follow us to the park. And so we we go down. We're driving along the Bedford Highway, and I'm driving my normal speed. and, And my wife, Shannon, says slow down. I'm like, why? And she's like, well, you're going, you're going too fast and they might get lost. Like they don't know where they're going. I was like, all right, they're right behind us. It's the Bedford Highway. Nobody's going to get lost here. But I I did slow down, just keep her happy. And so I'm driving, driving along the Bedford Highway slower than I would normally ever drive along that highway. And so while I'm driving slower, I can, I can see things I've never seen before. And all of a sudden, I just noticed this massive house on this gigantic property that I had not noticed before in the eight years I've lived here. And I kind of, I said to Shannon, I was like, man, that thing's massive. Like, I've never seen that. And she's like, well, it's not new. Look at how old it is. And I was like, well, yeah, obviously. Now, sometimes you don't notice things until you slow down enough to see them. Um, have you ever noticed that? That until you slow down, you, you can't even notice the beauty in some things. What I'm talking about is maybe you have a picture or a painting in your house, and you pass by it every day, but then all of a sudden there's, there's this aspect. Maybe it's something kind of in the background that you never noticed before, but you're going, man, that's beautiful. Look at, look at the detail there. Or maybe it's a song that you listen to over and over again. But then all of a sudden, this, this one line just kind of jumps out at you one day, and you go, man, I didn't, I didn't notice the message that that line had or something like that. And there are these things that you can't notice the beauty of until you slow down. Now, we're studying the gospel, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, Paul lays out what the gospel is. He says, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. And then he goes on to talk about the people that saw Jesus after his resurrection. Now, we see that the burial is there, but what we tend to do when we, we preach or talk about the gospel is we focus on the crucifixion or the death and then the resurrection. We don't tend to spend a lot of time talking about Jesus' burial. But it's a significant detail. Um, Paul says it's an important part of the gospel. And so what I want to do this morning is slow down for a few minutes and just look at the burial of Christ and see why it's important. Now, every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all include uh, the burial of Christ in their gospel account. They, They kind of bring in different characters, different points of views, different details, but they all have the gospel there, which is telling us that this is an important part of the gospel. And so what I want to do this morning is something a little bit different. 
I want to read from what is called the harmony of the Gospels. And so what I'm going to read, it's all scripture. It's, it's all been taken out of the word of God. But somebody had took the different Gospels and they combined all the details into one harmonized account. So as we read this one account, we get as many details from it as possible. And so this is from Matthew chapter 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. And so it says, It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, there came a rich man named Joseph, a prominent member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Going boldly to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, Pilate ordered that the body be given to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the Sabbath was about to begin, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Then Joseph rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, who had come with Jesus from Galilee, followed Jesus and, sorry, Joseph, and sitting there opposite the tomb, saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, as odd as it may sound, the fact that Jesus is buried and where and the way in which Jesus is buried is kind of odd because the Latin poet Horace, he speaks of um, slaves crucified by the Romans as feeding the crows on the cross. Um, What he's essentially saying is that it's the Romans' practice to leave a body on the cross until it decomposes. And we're kind of going, well, that's disgusting, but there was a reason for it. This is Rome's way of making a point. They're saying, if you want to rebel against Rome, if you want to stand up for yourself, if you want to break our laws, cause trouble, you don't want to yield to Caesar, well, you can try it. But here's an example of people who tried it before and look what happened to them. The same thing will happen to you. And so this is Rome's way of enforcing its peace in the, in the people in which it dominates or is ruling over. And so um, this is how they enforce their peace. Troublemakers are going to be dealt with under Roman um, supervision, power. Now, in deference to the Jewish people, bodies within Palestine were allowed to be removed from the cross. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, we don't have it on the screen, 
but it essentially says that anybody who's hung on a tree is cursed in the sight of God and that that body must be taken off the tree or that cross before nightfall, that they must not remain on the cross overnight or it will defile the land that God has given them. Now, this doesn't mean that a crucified person's body is treated with respect. The burial and executed criminal often got in Palestine was simply to have their body taken far outside of the city and kind of dumped in a plot of land. So it's taken outside of Jerusalem, kind of dumped there, essentially the city dump, and that's the burial the person gets, the crucified person. And so it's not treated with much dignity. It's not treated with much respect. Now you have a man named Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body of Jesus. This is just to prevent confusion. This is not the adoptive father of Jesus, different Joseph. This Joseph is a secret disciple. He is a member of the Jewish council. Um, And so he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate, he's surprised to hear that Jesus has already died. And so he wants to confirm this. So he calls in the Roman centurion who's oversaw or overseen the crucifixion, and he goes, is he dead? And the centurion says, he is. Now, this is kind of important, because there are those who will argue that Jesus did not die on the cross, but that because of the ordeal, the pain that he was going through, he simply fainted. He passed out. Now, let's, let's just think about this for a second. If you had gone through what Jesus went through, You've gone through a sleepless night because you're, you're worried, you're anxious, you're praying about what you know is about to come. Then you're arrested after being betrayed by somebody who was close to you. And you go through all these false trials, being dragged all over town. And then finally, they're like guilty. They beat you. They torture you. Then they force you to carry um, this, this wooden cross to the place of your crucifixion. And then they nail you to it. And you hang there for six hours. And then they think you're dead, but they just want to make sure. And so they take a spear and they shove it into your side and blood and water come pouring out. You're dead after that. You you haven't fainted. You haven't passed out. You have died. And so Pilate's confirming with the centurion that he's dead. The Romans knew how to crucify people. They, they, they had done this a lot. They knew how to deal death. And they're confirming that Jesus is dead over and over again. And so Jesus is dead. But in this move that is somewhat irregular, Pilate gives Jesus' body to Joseph. Because in cases of treason against the Roman Empire, which is what Jesus is essentially accused of, it was highly irregular that the, the government would allow loving care of the body of an executed man. And so even a mother who would go to the the governor or whoever it is to ask for permission for the body of her crucified son would often receive a no. Now, Joseph might get this yes because he's a rich and influential man. He's on the council. It also might be further proof that that Pilate believes that Joseph, or sorry, Jesus was innocent. I mean, Pontius Pilate's trying to give Jesus an out, trying to get him out of this thing the whole time, but the Jews are like, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate believes Jesus is innocent, but he still has to do it to keep the peace in some ways. 
But Joseph is given the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, this other member of the council, they purchase linen, costly spices, and they bury Jesus in this garden tomb near the site of the crucifixion. Now, we owe a debt of gratitude um, in many ways to Joseph of Arimathea because the burial of Jesus is an important part of the gospel. First, it's important to Jesus' loved ones and his disciples that his body um, is buried because they do not want him, his body to be defiled or dishonored. And so think about this. If they're going to um, beat you, torture you, spit on you, mock you while you are alive, what will they do to your body when you are dead? And so this son, this teacher, this king, he receives a proper burial in a rich man's grave as Isaiah 53, 9 prophesies. Now, secondly, it's important to Jesus's enemies that he is buried because the Jewish council, they're, they're probably ticked. Let's understand this. They're probably ticked off at Joseph and Nicodemus, two members of the council, for taking the body of Jesus, um, burying it properly, going through all this uh, expense and work to give the body a proper burial, and in this lavish tomb. Going, guys, what are you doing? You're, you're treating our enemy so well. But yet, at the same time, they realize that the burial of Jesus in this tomb provides them an opportunity. And so they go um, to Pontius Pilate, and they ask for the tomb to be made secure. And so their thinking is this. If Jesus' body is in the tomb, we're able to prevent um, his body from being stolen and having his disciples going around telling people that Jesus is alive again. So with Jesus' body in a tomb that is sealed, secured, and guarded by Roman soldiers, they're going to be able to, be able to kind of stomp out any idea that Jesus is alive again. Because if, if his disciples start going, Jesus is alive, it's been three days, he's risen, he's the Messiah, the Romans, or sorry, the, the counselor are just saying, we're going to roll back that stone, there's his body, he's not alive. That's their thinking. Now thirdly, it's important for us to know that Jesus was buried. We know um, that Jesus died and that his body was placed in a tomb. There were witnesses, and we need to know what happens to his body after that. Because if we don't have the burial account, as crazy as it sounds, people could say this, that Jesus, on the cross, crucified, passes out. He faints. And so um, somehow he gets off the cross. Maybe somehow he gets off himself, or somebody takes him down, and he, he wakes up. He comes to later on, wherever it is, and he goes around, finds his disciples, starts appearing, and says, hey guys, um, I'm alive, I'm the Messiah, and he deceives them. They're just confused. If, if, if there was no burial, we'd have a hard time refuting that. But since his body is put into a tomb, we can say he died and he was buried. And we need to know this, because his burial, it makes his death all the more certain, but his resurrection to come all the more glorious. And so as I was getting ready for this morning, um, I kept asking this question, how do things get to this point? I mean, why is sinful man burying holy God? Why is um, eternal God lying in a tomb that he has had to borrow from mortal man? Why is the creation burying its creator? And I mean, like, imagine you're reading through the gospel for the first time. 
You've never heard about Jesus. You've never heard about Christianity. So you're encountering all this for the first time. And you get to this point where the hero of the story has been crucified. He's dead and he's lying in a tomb. You're going to go, what's going on? This is not how it's supposed to go. Now put yourself in the shoes of his disciples. Think about Joseph and Nicodemus and what thoughts are running through their heads in this moment. They're probably thinking to themselves, man, we, we thought he was the one. We thought he was God's Messiah. We thought he was the Savior of Israel. And imagine the hurt and disappointment. And in this moment, they're wondering, how did things go so bad so quickly? Because just a week before, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and, and the people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing their cloaks and palm branches in the road. They're saying, this is God's Messiah. And then less than a week later, Jesus is lying in a tomb. What caused Jerusalem to reject him? I mean, what brought the world to the point where sinful man is burying holy God. Now, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, uh, Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. And when we sin, which is to violate God's will, to violate God's commands for us, it's rebellion, and it says we deserve death. And so we are all sinners. So that is, that is you, that is the person to your left, that is the person to your right, that is this guy up on stage. All sinners deserving death. And that scripture would say that death is physical. It is spiritual and it is eternal. And so where we find all this, where we get all of it is in Genesis chapter 3. That God has created everything through the word which is Christ himself. And God says that it is good. It's not tainted by evil. Death is this totally foreign concept to the first human beings, Adam and Eve. They're living with God in the Garden of Eden. He's provided for all their needs. They are in perfect relationship with God, their creator. And God says, enjoy creation and all that it has to offer. But there's one thing. There's, there's one thing that you must not do because if you do that, you will surely die. And it's to reach out and eat or touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one thing. Now we know how this plays out. Satan comes into the garden. This fallen angel who had rebelled against God comes in in the form of a certain serpent. And he, he sees Eve and, and he begins talking to her. He deceives her. He lies to her. He says, you could be like God, knowing good and evil. You could be like God. And so she buys into this, and she takes the fruit. She takes a bite. She gives some to Adam, and Adam's like, okay, and just takes his bite. And with that act of rebellion, sin enters the world, and death with it. And there are consequences that, that life becomes harder for Adam and Eve. They're removed from the Garden of Eden so that they cannot eat from the tree of life and live forever. Now, in this moment, we tend to look at God and give him a hard time because he's, he's removing them from this perfect place, the Garden of Eden. We go, man, God, that's, that's so cruel because oh, things were good in the garden. They've just realized they're going to die. This is a hard time, and now you're, you're kicking them out of this perfect place. And we want to give God a hard time. But in reality, um, what God is doing is, is mercy. 
God does not want them to live forever with lives that are tainted and broken and affected by sin. And sometimes we forget in our our isolation, even the the safety of our homes, our, our city, our country, the church, how bad sin is. We forget how screwed up the world is, how hurt the world is because of sin. We're oblivious often to how ugly sin is. That when you you look around the world, um, the way people treat others is deplorable. That that people are often treated simply as, as tools, as possessions, as disposable. That, that we see things like sex trade or slavery and many forms of genocide. And at the root of all of this, the root cause of every pain, hurt, suffering, anxiety, fear, act of evil, or hatred is sin. Sin is at the root of it all. Sin destroys people, families, nations, the world, our relationship with God. And so in this act of mercy, God is saying, I will not allow my creation to live forever under the dominion of sin. I'm going to do something else. And we know it's an act of mercy because in this moment, God preaches the gospel. It's pretty cool that God himself is the first one to ever preach the gospel. So in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God says to the serpent or to Satan, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here comes the gospel. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So God in this moment is declaring war on Satan and sin and death. A child of a woman will one day come and end the war for good. This is the Messiah, the Savior. God is saying in this moment, death will not reign forever. And so Satan in this moment He knows what's going to be his end. He becomes determined to find and destroy this child who God has said will destroy him. This child who was born of Mary, the woman, and was named Jesus. Now we fast forward to Jesus' earthly ministry. And he's he's teaching his disciples. And he's saying things like this to them. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so Jesus is constantly dropping these hints. You know what, guys? I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. And his disciples are totally oblivious to it, or they're going, no, not you, Jesus. I'll stand up. I'll stop them before they ever lay a hand on you. You will not die. And we know how this works out, because Jesus is lying in the tomb. And his disciples have run away. Now, maybe you'll be encouraged by this. You were not the first disciple to promise something to Jesus and then let him down. I don't know, that's kind of encouraging in some ways. It's been happening the whole time. But do you ever notice how Jesus' 11 disciples, those, those remaining ones, all the Marys who were involved in this, Joseph and Nicodemus, in this moment, they're not going, don't be sad. Cheer up, this isn't that bad. Do you remember how Jesus said, um, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again? 
Don't, don't you know what that means? That it means Jesus is going to be back on Sunday morning. It's not that bad, guys. Jesus is coming back. They're not having conversations like that. What they're doing is they're purchasing linen. They're buying spices. They're wrapping up Jesus' body, and they're putting it in the tomb for what they believe is for good, for his body to decay. Now, as I looked at these texts, I noticed that Joseph and Nicodemus, they're not really saying much during the burial work. At least it's not recorded. And you, you get this impression that they're working silently, probably heartbroken in this moment. Um, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joses, are probably watching in silence as well, across watching this work go down. Because in these moments, I mean, what do you say? What is, what is appropriate? What words do you offer in these times of death? We struggle to know what to say. I mean, what do you say to parents who are burying their infant child? What, what do you say um, to a family that is mourning the loss of, of their, their teenager who was kind of killed in, in, in their young years, the prime of life? What do, you, what do you say even to an 85-year-old widow who is mourning the loss of her husband of 63 years? I mean, what words do you offer? What words feel appropriate? I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to find those right words. And, and I think the reason is, is, and we struggle with all of this, is because God did not design us for death. That no matter how much this happens, we don't really get comfortable with it. Rarely do we just accept death as something that's going to happen. That every time it happens, it hurts each time. We know it's going to happen, but it hurts every time. I mean, if somebody passes away and, and they're talking to the family and somebody's saying like, well, it's just death. It happens. It was their time. I mean, if somebody's saying stuff like that to the family, you're kind of going like, what's wrong with you? Like, are you, are you broken? Are you dead inside? Because that's not what we say. We, we wrestle, we struggle with death. Death feels wrong. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, Paul says that death is an enemy of Christ. It is our enemy as well. And death was not a part of God's original plan for creation. How do we know this? You don't see day eight in Genesis, God creates death. And God looked at death and said, well, it's not that good, but it is what it is. Like, you don't see that in Genesis. You see that death comes with the fall of man. That death is a result of sin. And so this is why Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Because he sees what sin is doing to his creation, how it's hurting it, it's devastating it. And death is not our friend. Death is not sweet release for anybody outside of Christ. It's not. And so physical death, this body dying, is not the whole extent of death. There is more death beyond physical death. It's ongoing, eternal separation from God and all that God gives and blesses and graces us with. This eternal death is hell. And this is our motivation, one of the motivations for preaching and sharing the gospel. Because there is eternal death. Death is not limited to the, the death of this body. And so death is our enemy 
And God never intended for you to die, but sin disrupted the plan. Now for the disciples, in this moment, their hopes of the kingdom are being buried alongside Jesus. They don't know what's to come. There isn't much hope for them in this moment. We have to understand, sin is the reason that sinful man is burying holy God. Sin is the reason Jesus is lying dead in the tomb that he's borrowed from mortal man. Now, in this moment, there's something beautifully, powerfully symbolic happening where you have um, Joseph placing the body of Jesus into a tomb that was probably meant to be Joseph's tomb. And you see that Jesus has died the death that Joseph deserved. They swapped places that Jesus has gone to the grave for Joseph to satisfy the law that says that sin demands death or blood. And Paul puts it beautifully in Romans 5.8. He says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. But the disciples in this moment, they don't know what's coming. They're, they're devastated. And what's, what's Satan doing in this moment? I mean, Satan's happy. Satan thinks he has won. The threat of the child that God speaks about in Genesis 3 has been dealt with. The one that would crush his head, as far as he knows, is dealt with. He's feeling victorious as far as he's concerned. He's defeated all the intended purposes of God. And so Satan is celebrating like a Leafs fan would celebrate when the Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup later this year. Um, He's planning the victory plate. Maybe that's too soon, I know. We'll see. But, but Satan's excited. Satan thinks he has won. Now, did you ever notice where the tomb where Jesus is buried is located? I'll admit, I didn't really ever notice this too much until I was getting ready for this. But in John chapter 19, verses 41 and 42, John says this, The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Jesus is buried in a garden tomb. Do you remember where the fall of man took place in Genesis 3? It's in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Now scripture shows us that God is, is big on imagery. God is big on the symbolic And I don't think that Jesus being buried in a garden tomb is is purely coincidence. I mean, though the fall of man happened in a garden, and though Jesus has been crucified um, near a garden, his body has been buried in a garden, I think God is making a point in this moment. He's saying, do you remember that promise that I made of that child? The one that you'd strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head? Well, that promise is about to come to fruition in this garden. Because gardens, they're not a place of death, but of life. That Satan seems to have forgotten that gardens are a place where what has died and been buried helps to give birth to new life. And I love how Paul writes his synopsis of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. Do you notice that after the word burial, there's not a period? It's a comma. That God is not done. 
The gospel does not end with death and burial, but something greater. It ends with a resurrection. And the enemy, he would love to leave kind of that period after your death and burial. But God through Christ wants to put a comma there. And yes, sin is going to wreak its havoc on our physical bodies until Christ returns. We will die that physical death. But for the Christian, that physical death is merely a transition because God through Christ did something amazing. That in his infinite wisdom and grace, he did something that is far greater than a grave could contain. And we call that new life. We call it the resurrection. And we're going to talk about that and celebrate it next week. But I read um, the first part of Romans chapter 6.23 earlier. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And then Paul writes this beautiful word, but. One of the most beautiful words you can usually see in scripture, but. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And sin it has and will continue to bury a lot of good things and the things we love. But the gospel says that doesn't have to be the end of the story. That God's offer of grace is still on the table for anybody who is still alive, who's still breathing. That he he is not finished with you yet. And so if you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, um, maybe this whole gospel thing is kind of new to you, we always invite you, encourage you to talk to me or one of our other leaders afterwards We'd love to explain what it all means even more. But I'm praying that we understand that the burial of Christ is an important part of the gospel. That it helps us realize that Christ's death on our behalf is all the more certain. But that the resurrection that followed is all the more glorious.